Welcome to Blood, Bodies, and Bones, a podcast about true crimes, murder mysteries, and more. I'm your host, Jay. Before we get into today's episode, I want to take a moment to say something. I mentioned on social media several months ago that Blood, Bodies, and Bones had to take a break due to circumstances that were out of my control at the time. As promised, though, it was just a pause. So for the listeners who were waiting patiently for more episodes, I want to thank you for coming back. I'm excited to share more stories with you. And if you're a new listener to the podcast, welcome. So let's get right to it. Shortly after 12.30 a.m. on Christmas morning in 1945, George and Jenny Sauter woke up to smoke rolling through their family home as fire consumed the residence. The two parents and four of their ten children managed to flee the burning home. After unsuccessfully attempting to rescue the children who didn't make it out, George and Jenny had feared the worst. With the fire extinguished and the smoke cleared, the couple prepared for the dreaded news. However, George and Jenny were told that no remains were found of the five other children. Shocked and stunned, not only did they wonder how the remains of their other children were not found in the fire-damaged debris, but if the children escaped, where were they now? This is Blood, Bodies, and Bones, the Sauter children. In 1908, Giorgio Sadu, later known as George Sauter, left Tula, Sardinia, Italy, and immigrated to the United States. He was accompanied by his older brother, who returned to Italy after leaving the 13-year-old on Ellis Island. George would find work carrying supplies to laborers on the Pennsylvania railroads, and, after a few years, decided to move to Smithers, West Virginia. Driven and smart, George worked as a truck driver, eventually launching his own trucking company. He met his future wife, Jenny Cipriani, when he was in one of the local stores. Jenny's family immigrated from Italy as well, when Jenny was just three years old. The two married, settling in Fayetteville, West Virginia, in the United States, and between 1923 and 1943, would have ten children. At that time, Fayetteville was a small town with an active Italian immigrant community, which would seem like the perfect place to settle down and have a family. George was strongly opinionated about many things, from business to current events and politics, but he was surprisingly quiet when it came to discussing his youth, and would never explain why he left Italy. In the fall of 1945, the Sodders were visited by a man asking if they needed help with hard labor around the property. While walking around the grounds with George, the man pointed to two fuse boxes at the back of the home, and indicated that this was going to cause a fire someday. George thought this was odd, as the local power company had recently visited the Sauter home, stating that the fuse boxes were in fine condition. Another visitor had stopped at the Sauter home, attempting to sell life insurance to the family. When George had declined, the man reportedly became upset, and told the father of ten, Your goddamn house is going up in smoke, and your children are going to be destroyed. You are going to pay for the dirty remarks you have been making about Mussolini. George had been vocal about his dislike for the Italian dictator, even engaging in arguments with some of the Italian residents of Fayetteville. The Sodders were a well-known and liked family in their community, and, as such, George didn't take the visitor's threat too seriously. These two instances were not the only oddities that had occurred before the Sodder home went up in flames. Just prior to Christmas, George's older sons had noticed that a man was parked along Highway 21, watching the younger children as they arrived home from school. The Sauter family had gathered together and opened some Christmas presents before going to sleep shortly after 12.30 a.m. on Christmas Day. 
While the family was sleeping, the telephone rang loudly, breaking the silence in the home. Jenny woke and answered the call. The female caller on the other end of the line asked to speak with someone that Jenny had never heard of before. She had advised the caller that there wasn't anyone in their home by that name and said that you must have the wrong number. However, on her way there, she noticed that all of the lights downstairs were still on. Once Jenny had proceeded downstairs to turn off the lights, she had also noticed that the curtains were open and that their front door was unlocked. Noting that the 17-year-old daughter Marion was fast asleep on the couch and assuming that all of the other children were upstairs sleeping in their beds, she proceeded to turn out all the lights, close the curtains, and lock the front door before heading back upstairs. Shortly after falling asleep, she was woken again, but this time it wasn't by a ringing telephone. She had heard a loud banging sound on the roof, followed by a rolling noise. Thinking nothing of this, Jenny fell back asleep. The matriarch of the family would be woken up a third time by heavy smoke billowing into her room. With the home engulfed in smoke, the eldest children, John, 23, Marion, 17, and George, Jr., 16, who were in a bedroom at the end of the hallway, managed to escape along with their parents and two-year-old Sylvia, who were located in a bedroom downstairs. Once they had exited the home, George Sr. realized that five of his youngest children were nowhere in sight. Worried that they were frozen with fear in one of the two bedrooms at either end of the hallway, and unable to escape the fire that consumed the staircase between the bedrooms, George broke a window and re-entered the burning home. George Sr. swept through the downstairs bedrooms as best he could. However, with the incredibly thick rolling smoke impairing his vision considerably, he had to exit the home. The father of ten went around to where he kept a ladder propped against the home, determined to reach the second level any way possible. However, when he got to that location, the ladder was missing. Quickly considering other options, George Sr. decided that he would drive one of his two coal trucks up to the home, climb on top of it, and try to reach the second floor windows. Even though they were in working order with no issue the day before, both trucks would not start. He even attempted to take the rainwater that they had collected in a barrel to try and extinguish the flames. However, the water was frozen. In the meantime, their daughter Marion ran to a neighbor's home and tried to contact the Fayetteville Fire Department. However, there was no answer. It was noted that a neighbor who saw the blaze tried to reach the fire department as well and got no answer. So the neighbor drove into town and tracked down Fire Chief F.J. Morris. Chief Morris initiated Fayetteville's version of a fire alarm, which was a sort of phone tree where one firefighter was contacted and then they contacted another and so on. It was reported that a fire crew did not arrive to the Sauter residence until 8 a.m., even though the department was only two and a half miles away. Once the firefighters did arrive, the structure was nothing more than a pile of ash, as it had been burning for hours. Both George and Jenny assumed the absolute worst. Their children surely had perished in the flames. After a search of the fire debris, authorities spoke with Jenny and George and told them that no remains were found. What makes this even more disturbing or odd is that Chief Morris confirmed that the blaze was not hot enough to completely cremate bodies. After the investigation was complete, a state police inspector determined that the cause of the fire was due to faulty wiring. It was noted that George Sr. decided to cover the basement with five feet of dirt, attempting to preserve the site as a memorial. Five death certificates were issued before the new year, and each attributed the cause of death to fire or suffocation.
both George and Jenny were determined that their children were still alive. So, they decided to erect a billboard along Route 16, in hopes that anyone might come forward with information about their children. Unable to accept the conclusion that her five children could perish in a fire with no remains, Jenny decided to conduct her own tests, burning various animal bones to see if fire could consume them. However, each attempt resulted in a pile of charred bones. Jenny even spoke with an employee at a crematorium, who informed her that bones remain even after bodies are burned for two hours at 2,000 degrees. This was just the start of strange and odd moments in this story. A telephone repairman had told the Sodders that their lines were not burned, but had appeared to be cut instead. Both George and Jenny had wondered, how then could the official report list the cause of the fire as faulty wiring if the lines had been cut? In addition to this, a witness had come forward and said that he saw a man at the fire scene taking a block and tackle, which was used to remove car engines. Could this explain why the trucks wouldn't start during the incident? While visiting the property, Jenny found a hard rubber object in their yard. When George took a look at it, he thought that it might have been a napalm pineapple bomb, the type that was used in warfare. Might this object have been the cause of the loud noise that Jenny heard on the roof that night? There were also sightings of their children. A woman had detailed how she saw the missing solder children peering from a car that had passed by while the fire was ongoing. Another woman who was operating a tourist stop between Fayetteville and Charlestown, approximately 50 miles west, claimed that she saw the children the morning after the fire. She stated to the police that she had served them breakfast, and that there was a car with a Florida license plate at the tourist court too. Another woman at a hotel in Charleston also said that she saw the children's photo in a newspaper, and that she saw four of them just a week after the fire, stating that, the children were accompanied by two women and two men, all of Italian extraction. She continued, stating that, I do not remember the exact date. However, the entire party did register at the hotel and stayed in a large room with several beds. They registered about midnight. I tried to talk to the children in a friendly manner, but the men appeared hostile and refused to allow me to talk to these children. One of the men looked at me in a hostile manner. He turned around and began talking rapidly in Italian. Immediately, the whole party stopped talking to me. She continued, I sensed that I was being frozen out, and so I said nothing more. They left early the next morning. Jenny and George, still determined that their children had to be alive, decided to write a letter to the Federal Bureau of Investigation in 1947. The director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, responded to their letter stating, Although I would like to be of service, the matter related appears to be of local character and does not come within the investigation jurisdiction of this bureau. FBI agents had offered to help the distraught parents if the local authorities gave them permission. Unfortunately for the Sodders, the Fayetteville Police and Fire Department declined the offer. Undeterred by this setback, the couple contacted a private investigator by the name of C.C. Tinsley. Mr. Tinsley discovered that the insurance salesman who threatened George just happened to be a member of the coroner's jury that deemed the fire accidental. In addition, the investigator heard from a Fayetteville minister that Fire Chief F.J. Morris had discovered a heart in the ashes of the Sodder residence. It was said that he placed it inside of a dynamite box and buried it at the scene. Upon hearing this, Tinsley had contacted the fire chief and convinced him to show him where the box was buried. 
The two gentlemen dug up the box and took it to a funeral director, who, upon looking at the contents, concluded that it was beef liver, untouched by the fire. With rumors still swirling around the community, the Sodders heard that Morris had told others of the contents of this box. Supposedly, he had said that he had buried the beef liver in the rubble, hoping that any remains found would placate the remaining family members enough to halt the investigation. The mystery of their children's disappearance would continue to haunt the Sodders, as over the next few years, tips and leads continued to pour in. After seeing a newspaper photo of school children in New York City, George Sr. was convinced that his daughter Betty was one of the children, so much so that he drove to Manhattan in search of the child. However, her parents refused to speak with him. In 1949, a Washington, D.C. pathologist named Oscar B. Hunter became involved in this mystery when the Sodders decided to have the fire scene searched again. This thorough excavation uncovered several small objects, ranging from damaged coins, a partially burned dictionary, and even several shards of vertebrae. These shards were sent to the Smithsonian Institution for further analysis, and the report that came back stated the following. The human bones consisted of four lumbar vertebrae belonging to one individual. The age of this individual at death should have been 16 or 17 years. The report indicated that the bones had shown greater skeletal maturation than what was expected for a 14-year-old boy. It is, however, possible, although not probable, for a boy 14 and a half years old to show 16 to 17 year old maturation. The report had noted that it was very strange that no other bones were found and that one would expect to find the full skeletons of five children rather than only four vertebrae. It was concluded in the report that the bones were most likely already in the soil that George Sr. used to fill in the basement to create the memorial for his children. The report from the Smithsonian Institute would prompt two hearings in Charleston, West Virginia. This would still not bring the Sodders any additional information or hope, as, following the hearings, they were told that their case was hopeless by Governor Patterson and State Police Superintendent Burchett, and that the case was now closed. It was at this point that George Sr. and Jenny had a billboard erected along Route 16 and passed out flyers offering a $5,000 reward, later to be increased to $10,000, for any information that led to the recovery of their children. The billboard showed a picture of all five missing children and read the following. On Christmas Eve, 1945, our home was set afire and five of our children, ages five through 14, kidnapped. The officials blamed defective wiring, although lights were still burning after the fire started. The official report stated that the children died in the fire. However, no bones were found in the residue and there was no smell of burning flesh during or after the fire. What was the motive of the law officers involved? What did they have to gain by making us suffer all these years of injustice? Why did they lie and force us to accept those lies? After the billboard was erected, tips had started to come in, with someone in Florida claiming that the children were staying with a distant relative of Jeannie's, and a woman in St. Louis wrote a letter stating that the oldest girl, Martha, was in a convent there. George Sr. would travel the country, investigating each and every tip. However, he always came back with no answers. Almost 20 years later, when collecting her mail, Jeannie received an envelope addressed to her. There was no return address, and it was postmarked from Kentucky. When she opened the envelope, the only content inside was a photograph of a man with dark hair who looked to be approximately in his 20s. On the back of the picture was written, Louis Sauter. 
I love brother Frankie, I-L-I-L boys, A90132 or 35. The resemblance of the young man in the photograph was eerily similar to that of their son Louis, who would have been nine years old when he and his siblings disappeared. The photograph of the man showed dark curly hair, brown eyes, and a similar strong nose and a tilt of the left eyebrow. Both Jeannie and George Sr. were convinced that this was their son, and even hired a private detective to travel to Kentucky to investigate further. However, they never heard back from the detective again. The Sodders decided to add the new photograph to the billboard, but there were no new changes or leads. George Sr. passed away a year later in 1968, still hoping for any break in the case that would lead to them finding out what happened to their five children. His wife, Jeannie, erected a fence around her property and dressed in black, mourning the loss of the five children until her passing in 1989. The billboard was eventually taken down. The remaining children and grandchildren of George Sr. and Jenny Sauter continued to investigate the disappearance and have a theory of their own as to what happened on that fateful night. They believed that the local mafia had tried to recruit their father, and he refused. And then, when he didn't join them, they extorted him for money. And when that didn't work, on the night of the fire, someone broke into their home, and with the flames spreading, convinced the children to come with them to safety. If the siblings had survived and lived for decades, and if the photograph really was of Lewis Sauter, they failed to contact their parents only because they wanted to protect their family from any further harm. Two-year-old Sylvia Sauter, the youngest of the Sauter children, would grow up get married, and have a daughter of her own, who she named Jeannie, after her mother and one of her missing siblings. Sylvia would continue where her parents left off and investigate the disappearance of her siblings. Sylvia searched websites and engaged with anyone who was still interested in the case up until her passing in April 2021 at the age of 79. Unfortunately, the disappearance of the five Sauter children remains a mystery to this day. So, was this an orchestrated attempt to harm the Sauter family by the local Sicilian Mafia in retaliation for George's refusal to join? Was George too vocal against Mussolini, and someone determined that he had to be silenced? Were the children kidnapped as punishment, or were the children simply rescued by someone who saw the home on fire, knew George Sr. and his family were a target, and attempted to keep the children safe? Authorities suspected that George had somehow crossed the Sicilian Mafia, even though he had no known criminal ties. The circumstances leading up to the fire, and after their home was destroyed by the flames, are strange to say the very least. Why did officials deem that the children perished in the fire with no evidence of bones? What was the real reason that Fire Chief F.J. Morris stated he discovered a heart in the ashes of the Sauter residence and then placed it inside of a box burying it at the scene? Was this the work of Mafia members or someone who had a score to settle with George? What are your thoughts and theories as to what happened that fateful night? Head on over to our Instagram or Facebook page at Blood Bodies and Bones Podcast and let us know. The links are included in the episode description. That's all for this episode. Thank you for joining me and letting me share this story with you. I hope you enjoyed it. I will be back on May 18th with a brand new episode. Until then, remember to keep your doors locked, your curtains closed, and maybe leave that light on when you go to sleep tonight. <laughs>